Hey everyone, welcome to episode 79 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. I am super excited for this week's guest, Jason Matias. He runs a service called The Art of Selling Art, and it's all about ways to maximize your ability to market your photography. In the short time that I belong to his group, I've learned a tremendous amount. So, um, you know, we talked a lot about the stuff that he educates people on on his website and on the podcast and i think you're gonna really dig it uh special thanks to the producers of the podcast um those that would be those that contribute at the 20 dollar a month level or higher on patreon at www.patreon.com slash f-stop and listen michael howard jack curran eric stenslin chris rice jeff peterson and charlotte gibb thank you so much Enjoy the episode. Cool, man. Well, uh, Jason Matias, man, thank you so much for uh, coming on to F-Stop, collaborate, and listen. Thanks, man. I'm excited and surprised to be here. It's pretty cool. <laughs> cool, dude. Well, um, you know, I I saw something you posted on Facebook uh, last week, I think it was, and I just got super interested in what you're up to um, with your project of um basically it's the art of selling art um and uh i thought it would be an amazing topic to have uh you on the podcast and talk through um kind of what you're up to and maybe kind of give our listeners um some tips on how better they can sell their art yeah that's so when i posted (laughs) that i had no idea that i was going to get like any type of reaction um like from you no less uh, but basically what I posted was, uh, it's sort of a review from, from one of the people in the group. Um, so the art of selling art, that is something that I started because I'm an oversharer. And then I realized <laughs> I was spending a whole lot of time talking about this one topic and I found that maybe there was some value in it. And, um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing started from, you know, one of the things I talk about in the art of is getting published, right? So I went to someone who I was following on, on Instagram and I was like, hey, I just saw that you're a writer for F-Stoppers. Let's do an article together. And then she was super yes. receptive to just talking to me and we started brainstorming, you know, what the hell do I have to talk about? And, um, or what, what about my stuff can she write about that would be interesting for her audience on F-Stoppers? And um, so I was telling her what I was doing and then I got to lecturing about the business of art, which is where almost every conversation I ever have goes to. And, um, and she's like, oh, well, let's write about you as a fine art photographer, um, you know, making it as selling prints. And, and then that article got a huge amount of feedback. And, and I had to answer a lot of questions from a lot of people. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could just make something out of it. And that's, yeah. that's what I've been doing. What I appreciated about that article, it wasn't it wasn't your typical F-stoppers article. You know, it actually had some depth and some teeth to it in terms of like actionable advice that people could actually do something with. So, um, and I think there was a lot of um, I don't know, there was a lot of cookie uh, crumb trails that you left in that article that was just ripe for further exploration. Um, and I was hoping we could spend some time talking about some of those things today. But uh, I mean, basically the gist of what you're up to is helping other artists become better at selling their art, right? Right, exactly. Uh, so I, I should have prefaced when we were talking like behind the scenes before we got started, but I'm, a, I'm an oversharer. So you could, you could like give me a cough and I'd be like, okay, I need to shut up now. Um, <laughs> uh, don't worry about that, bro. I'll, uh, I'm typically the oversharer, so... Um, okay. if, if we get like one good thing, someone gets out of the podcast, um, between the two of us, we'll be lucky. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I didn't leave, I didn't leave breadcrumbs on purpose. I was just sharing. And then Nicole wrote what she was going to write. And, uh, and then I got to read it later. Um, but yeah, I guess it did leave a lot of room for, for more content. Well, one of the one of the things that I thought was really fascinating in there that was a lot different than what you typically hear people talk about when it comes to marketing and social media and all that kind of stuff is um, is the way in which you you personally um, approach 
social media. And it's almost like you reverse engineer the way social media is supposed to be used. And I was kind of hoping you could talk about um, how you use social media in terms of selling selling your art. Yeah, so so you're right. I do kind of go about it backwards. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in the audience on social media, but still like every day I, you know, I post something and I'm thinking, oh man, if I could get a hundred likes or if I could get a thousand or what if I had more followers and it's hard to not, you know, chase that idea. But what I found, you know, even though I still yearn for, you know, the internet fame for my art um, is that it doesn't really create sales. And there's people in my group who have tens of thousands of followers who don't sell their work. Um, And in social media at its core, um, it's kind of like a gambling house where you get on and you go gamble and the only person who wins is the house. And (laughs) instead of money, the social media houses are winning in information. So I use social media for that information. And uh, there's a lot of ways to go about it. Like I know, for instance, that my target market is someone who does X number of jobs that are typically make a lot of money and they live in certain places and they follow other people who sell work successfully. So I spend my time on social media looking for those people instead of trying to post enough content that they find me. So how do you do that? uh, There's the real broad approach, which is um, you can, like, for instance, I have a list um, that I got off the internet somewhere of the 100 richest places in, uh, in America. And most of them are concentrated in the Northeast, which is just a tidbit of information you didn't need right now. But um, <laughs> they, uh, you could use that information for your, your ads, let's say, Facebook, Instagram ads, mm. and you could target them only to the people who live in those 15, 20 mile radius areas that are pocketed around the country, because those are the people that can afford your work. Mm. Yeah, the, the flip side of that is they typically don't really look at the type of stuff that you're trying to sell. They end up in places where there's a filter for your for their art, um, such as galleries and, and things like that. But um, the other way that I've used it is, is kind of in a sniper gorilla mode, where I will literally follow the successful artists and some of the successful artists and i don't know if we should name drop but um the people who buy work for them are really proud of it or cocky for it or some reason which is (laughs) and they're not something i really don't understand you know look at all of these peter lick pieces i own Exactly. Like Peter Lick will post. Okay, so we, we dropped the name. So Lick will post something and then like 11 people will be like, oh, I own this one or I have three Peter Licks. And I think I found that a significant portion of the people or the accounts, let's say, on there that are saying that are fake. Really? Which is an interesting marketing scheme. Oh, well, that doesn't surprise yeah, me. There's a pattern that, that I see. Like a lot of them are private. They have small followings and then they all say typically the same structured thing, um, which I guess if I was already making millions, it wouldn't cost me too much to hire someone to make a bunch of fake accounts to comment on my own stuff. So gross. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's gross if you look at it from the art standpoint, and that's why um, the art world doesn't see Lick the way that his collectors or the people who buy his work do. Uh-huh. Uh, but but it's not gross in terms of the business of marketing your shit. Right. So there's two ways to look at it. One is really effective and one is like scoundrelly. But anyway, some of those people are real. And for a while, and I still do this sometimes, is I'll go and I'll write to the people. And I'll say, hey, I saw you like fine art. I'll send them a direct message. I saw you like fine art. Here's an example of some of my work. And I'll show them a picture of a piece. And I'll show them a picture of the piece hanging in home. And um, maybe you'll be interested. And that has got me more than $20,000 in sales. And then I still have followers who are talking about still buying my work. They're just waiting on finishing their second or third home or some crap like that. Um, But they still follow me and they still say they're going to buy it. So it 
it's it's been a pretty effective um, method for because what are you what you're doing is you're finding pre-qualified collectors right and they're pre-qualified because they're raising their hand and yelling it out to the world right you're like yeah yeah you know which isn't typical when it comes to that crowd i feel like because you know it's i think galleries spend a lot of time trying to curate those types of people and kind of keeping their names and contact information close to the vest but i think i don't know it's in the nature of people with money to not to brag about what they have to their friends Well, I actually, I don't think that this is, well, yes, you're right. That is true. But on social media, I find it's like only a certain artist, few artists actually do that. Like, so there's a lick crowd and I call them the lick crowd because they're people who buy art who don't necessarily understand the value of a limited edition. Because when they buy a lick, they're buying a thousand pieces of something, which isn't limited at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a few painters who have some really cool, very trendy work and, um, for, for whatever reason, it, it invites that braggy crowd about owning their work. But, you know, when I look at other painters or other photographers who are selling at the super high end, you I never see them. I mean, like David Yarrow, for instance, sells his uh, wildlife images, $80,000, $90,000. And I never see someone being like, hey, I own four of yours, you know? Hmm. So it's a culture that the artist creates around their work, I think. Interesting. And it's it's interesting. So one of the things so I got the I had the benefit of um watching your drunk QA with your secret Facebook group of people that uh that um are, you know, uh basically um paying you for the service of learning how to sell their art better. Um and uh one of the things you brought up in your really cool drunken Q&A, which I think is hilarious and fun, is uh, targeting the right people, not more people. So I was, and, and specifically for like mailing lists. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how, how you go about or how we should go about as photographers finding the right people. Yeah, I think I was talking about art fairs um, yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. in that bit. Um, so I just want to say that the, the Facebook group is not only for people who buy the, buy or are subscribers to the program. Anyone can join. Oh, cool. It's just kind of, it's, it's a quote closed group so that I just don't have people who really aren't motivated, just jumping on for no reason. Right, right, right. Um, right. So, um, so yeah, anyone can be there, but, uh, so mailing lists. Um, so like I, I said a little bit about or alluded to before about information and how this is an information economy and what you're really competing for is attention and you, and things like that. Um, so my approach in art fairs in the past uh, has always been to get as many mail emails as I can and then sell something to all those people, you know, try to make some money off of the people who are interested enough to follow me. And all that does is give me an, a bloated email list full of people who may or may not even open my emails. And then I end up having to pay for that because, you know, once you hit a certain right. number of, of followers, you have to start paying for the, that email list. And like I, my email list right now is like six or 7,000 and that's like over $120 a month. So what's the point of all of that? If it's just, I don't sell something that everyone can buy. So having an email list full of people who can't afford to work or aren't interested in art or don't see the value in it is a waste of my money. So my approach to gathering information has changed. Um, I, I talk about in one of my videos about how now I use my iPad to collect information instead of having a signing book and things like that. And um, in the last two shows, I just stopped offering it to people. It was always there. And if someone was interested in, in a genuine way, I'd say, hey, you can join my mailing list. Or if someone was interested in a piece and we had discussion about that, I'd say, here, Join my, give me your information so that I can reach out to you about this piece and other, you know, whatever they asked for. And, um, and then I would really only tell those people about the mailing list because those are the effective, you know, the quality leads versus open-ended leads. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to, it's going to change depending on who you are and what you're selling because you have to decide the price point of your work. And my pieces start generally at around 2000, but I, I don't think I've sold a small piece like that in two years. So, you know, generally my sales are like 4,500 and up. And um, 
I need to, uh, I forgot where I was going with that. But so the people that I have to, that I'm trying to connect with, the people who are interested in a serious way about putting something like that in their home. So what, what kind of information are you trying to gather from people once you figure out that they might be someone who's good to have on your mailing list? Number one is always their phone number. Always their phone number. Because in today's world, emails, emails used to be the top of the, you know, the bread and butter for companies. Um, not even just talking artists, but emails were the way that people made sales. But uh, that's not the case. You know, you're lucky to have a 20% open rate on your emails uh, nowadays, but everybody gets texts to the phone. And then you really know for sure if that person is ignoring you or not, Um, (laughs) which happens to be the case, you know, really often is people uh, decide they don't want to deal or they don't want the piece of art or they can't afford it um, or they don't like it, you know, any of those options. And instead of telling you no, they, uh, they just ignore you. And with email, it's difficult because you don't know if your emails go to spam. Mm-hmm. People will mm-hmm. write to me from my website, like from the contact form on my website and be like, hey, I need a quote for this. And I'll respond. And that email that I responded from the contact form that they wrote on my website will go to spam. Wow. It's, it's <laughs> insane. It's, I have no idea how many sales I'd lost bef- before um, figuring this out. So phone numbers are the most sure way of getting someone and people are so used to texting nowadays that I don't think it's um, too offhand or, or personal to be on someone's phone. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, I've noticed this year that, um, that uh, the politicians are starting to use text more like um, the people that have mailing lists from the, the, uh, the, the different, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties, like they have phone numbers, of, of course, associated with people who registered and the people that are doing ca- canvassing now, they're, they're texting. They're, they're not, they're not mailing, they're texting now, which I think is brilliant personally. Cause when you get a text, you're like, Oh, I'm going to respond to that, you know, or at least you're going to read it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that's great. Um, my initial thing was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to throw away my phone. But um, <laughs> but at the same time, I, me and my girlfriend, Angelina, she, we were just talking. I was like, I need to find a synopsis of what's going up in this election coming up so that I can actually go out there and vote. So, you know, if I could, if I could get, I want to vote and I want to be involved is what I was saying. So I think it'd be great if I could get some brief messages that could lead me in the right direction for uh, the content that I need to make good decisions in the future. Right. Well, let's talk about like, once you have somebody that's kind of in that sales funnel, so to speak, um, who, you know, is at least interested in your photography or buying something from you. What is, what is your process uh, for following up with potential buyers? Like in, including like frequency and method. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so this is so I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, and someone's gonna be like, "Well, that's too much." But this is my my tried and true approach. Okay. Um, as soon as I get someone's information, I am going to follow up every day for a week, and especially wow. if I get their phone number, I'll send them a text every day for a week, and we'll have a conversation, or we won't. And um, after that week, and then it just goes to once a week emails and or text, and then uh, eventually they just fade into my massive email um, list abyss. But, uh, and then I'll, I'll keep them in the back of my mind and I'll think, you know, let me give you a good example. So last year at Redmond Art Fair, uh, not the one this year, but the previous year, I had this woman and her friend were riding their bikes. They saw the art fair, decided to ride through. Both of them have expressed strongly how much they want a piece of art. Both of them can certainly afford it, um, but I haven't been able to close a sale on them. Uh, but they are willing to talk to me all the time. And then one of them even came back to Redmond this year to see the work and was all about, hey, I want to buy this red tree called a Vendasora. I just have to get my husband on board. And, um, and since I can't get his lazy ass to come to the actual fair, he's never going to fucking buy it because at high-end artwork, you need <laughs> both spouses to see it. Yeah. You need... Otherwise, um, the second one can't commit to the idea of spending that much money 
uh, when something they haven't already seen. They just don't trust their spouse or they don't, the money dynamic, however it is. So I almost know that this is never going to happen, but I keep reaching out. So uh, I, re I reached out, I sent them vendors and whatnot, and I tried to get a meeting with them in person. And this went on for a few weeks, but then um, I stopped. Uh, they, they got faded into my email address until I thought of them again. Since I already have their number, I just sent a message saying hello and um, a little reminder about the piece that she really loved. And, uh, and then she said, okay, well, I'm going to be home this weekend. They both travel for work with separate jobs. So they like, I don't even know if they see each other half the year, but she's like, we're going to be, hopefully we're going to be home. This, her words exactly. Hopefully we'll be home this weekend and I can get them to take a look at it. And, uh, and then you just keep staying in touch. You have yeah. to keep competing for their attention. You yeah. know, the metric back in the day used to be you, a marketer would have to get in front of a person seven times in order to, um, seven times in order to make a sale. And today, or at least two years ago, when I read about this, how this metric had changed, it's 28 times. Wow. So you have to get in front of a person 28 times to get them to buy your $70 wallet. I don't know about you, but I see those wallet ads all the time. Yeah, and, dude. Um, and I still haven't bought one and I'm still like, oh, I like it. So, I mean, it's been like a hundred times for me on spending 70 bucks. Think about that type of connection you have to make if you're trying to sell a piece of artwork for 300, 400, 5,000, $10,000. Totally, it's, man. Um, well, so how, with all that being said, like how do you find, uh, how do you find customers that would resonate with the type of work that you're producing? Uh, so my biggest success has come through art shows and uh, I would like to change that. I would like to be able to just sell the work online. Um, but for the time being, my m the most success I've had has come from the art shows where people actually see it in person. Uh, secondly to that would be being able to find people like with Instagram or Facebook or more, more to the point Instagram who um, are ready and willing to cheer on a certain type of art form, you know, like the Essencios or the, the Peter Licks or the, um, this, uh, this Roderick guy, I can't remember his name, but the people who are like, yeah, I love your work. I have two of them or whatnot. You already know they like something that's similar to yours and you can be like, check this out. And yeah. you know, a lot of marketing is shameless is you have to be shameless. Even if it eats you up a little on the inside, you marketing and selling your stuff is really about showing it to as many people as you can. And you're, if you can show it to as many of the right people, you know, but you have to be willing to stand up and say, raise your hand and say, Hey, look at me. Otherwise you're not going to get found. So what would you say to people like me who like, whenever those situations arise or you have to like talk to people <laughs> and try to sell your stuff to them, like, what would you say to those people um, to like, to sell them on that idea? Like, like a pep talk, I guess, like, how do you get people excited to do that? I would ask them if they're hungry. You know? <laughs> have you eaten in the last week? Because, you know, you're going to have to go out and kill something. Um, that's really, it's really what it is. You have to overcome your mental, this mental, this idea that you have about your artwork and who you are. Because it's, it's a mindset thing. Like a, a person selling jewelry has no problem walking up to someone and saying, hey, look at my jewelry. Right. Especially especially if you go to, you know, outdoor malls or, you know, when someone's sitting outside with their jewelry or, or whatnot and you have those big display, that's what those display windows are. It's like, here, I think you'll like this. Take a look, you know, and that's a, a much more polite way of doing it. But um, if you're an emerging quote unquote artist or an artist just getting started, which is like pre-emerging, um, well, this is, this is a good point. So if you're, you're a person who makes art, then you're an artist. If you're a person who sells work for at least um, like more than 20% of your annual in, uh, income, then you're an emerging artist. And if you're, you're an early stage artist when you're making all your income from art, but you haven't had a solo show, and then after that, you're a mid-career to accomplished artist. So if you're in the you know, beginning, emerging to almost early career, then you have to be 
a hawker. You have to be able to stand up and say, hey, look at my shit. It's worth looking at. And I think you should take some time with me to see if it fits your, that's the only way to do it. Uh, especially today when, you know, I was quoting this in one of my other, one of my videos, you, 275,000 cameras are sold every day in the form of phones. Right. Right. So that's millions of pictures being produced by, you know, these 300,000-ish people with cameras and every one of them thinks they can do it. And especially if you're a photographer, I'm a photographer slash digital artist. So um, I tend to ignore the, the other mediums, you know, oil paint, watercolor, stuff like that. But people are always making art and it's flooded. It's, you know, there's so much out there. You have to be willing to, to stand up and say, my stuff is worth looking at in order to, to get to the attention and to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, that you talked about, um, I think it was, uh, I think it was in one of your videos is, um, the, this idea of persistence. And, you know, I've always heard that, you know, persistence is key. And you've talked about, you know, at least 28 times of getting, getting in front of people. But, uh, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about like how critical it is, um, the importance of this idea of persistence. Um, if you want to actually sell your work? Unless you are a prolific artist or, or a prodigy artist, then persistence is as important as the fact that you even make art. <clears throat> I mean, there's people who sell art who don't make art, and it's persistence that uh, it gets them there. Um, it's paramountly important. The, the field that you are competing in is massive because the definition of an artist is so fluid. It doesn't matter how, quote, good you are or how much of an impact you can make if you are not seeking the, the audience to make an impact on. So talk, yeah, totally. Talk to us a little bit about this idea of, of going for no, like, trying to get a no from somebody. So this is an idea that's completely valid, but I actually first learned it from um, multi-level marketing, believe it or not, <laughs> um, which, you know, I, actually, I don't think I'm ashamed to say, but um, it's a, a valid point no matter how you look at it. Uh, Cause you have ROI, right? Return on investment and excuse me. So you have return on investment, and if you can't maximize the uh, each sale or each client, customer, collector, whatever you call them, then you are going to um, end up losing in the long run. So going for no is this idea that uh, you keep making offers until someone says no. For instance, I have a sale going right now, which is a product of the last show that I did, and... Um, they want this one piece. Well, they want two pieces, but they don't think they can afford the two pieces. Uh, I think the sale together uh, with tax is just over 10 grand. And um, they sent me pictures of their home, and I know for a fact that they can afford it. It's just whether or not <laughs> they, are, they want to afford it. Um, I shouldn't say for a fact because everyone's situation is different. But, but you have an um, inkling that they have some expendable income. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so they definitely want the one piece. So I, I made them an offer on the second piece and um, they didn't really know about it. They had to think about it. So I made them another offer. And until they tell me, no, I don't want this other piece called Eternity Beach, then I'm going to try to figure out how to make it uh, appear to have more value than they're going to spend. Right. So someone would definitely buy something when the value that they're getting is less than the amount they feel they're spending. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just making that uh, that that ratio apparent. And, you know, so as a salesman, I can say you can do that. So but the artist in me, the artist part that has an adds value to my work, uh, just to kind of lay it all out there, I would never do that on a piece that's over 50 percent sold out because the value of that piece should be inherent. It should be it should speak for itself. And I shouldn't have to. Uh, make deals to get that piece out the door because so now it's worth more than the money 
But until I get to that point, from a business perspective, I want to push the art to that point where I can say its value has already been determined by the world because it's been this, it's sold this much, then um, I am willing to push the art uh, and just get that sale in um, for my own income and for pursuing this higher price point with the artwork. So are you uh, only doing limited edition prints? Yeah. Yeah. My works are editions of 50 or less. And then I have a whole nother series that's not landscapes. They're, they're nudes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which are, and those are editions of 15. Wow. Yeah, one of my uh, one of the guests I had on the podcast, uh, Mark Handy, he actually does, um, he was doing limited editions of one, which I thought was really cool. Um, you know, like talk about totally artificially inflating the demand for your product. Good God. <laughs> That's a tough sell. What was he pricing him at? Do you know? Um, I can't remember. I mean, it was, you know, five to 10 grand, I think. I mean, and he said pretty much he'd send it out to his mailing list and within a couple hours he would, he'd sell it. So like, that's pretty amazing stuff right there. Yeah. If you're creating a lot of work, yeah, I suppose you could do that. But imagine if I create four pieces a year, four or five pieces a year, because um, I'm after a very specific type of image. Sure. Now, if I only created four or five pictures a year, then that would be limiting my income right, a right, lot. Right, 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 right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. also be limiting my growth potential. Yeah, definitely. No, I think, I was thinking like 25 would be good. <laughs> like, you know, like I think one is probably extreme, but like 100 seems like a lot. I don't know. Yeah, my gallery guy who represents my nudes, um, he wanted me to do editions of five, oh, wow. uh, five, excuse me. And, uh, you know, I see the argument for it to push the sale, you know, from his perspective. It's like, hey, this is only five. Right. You know, when he's talking to his potential buyer. Um, but at the same time, I just don't. I'm acknowledging that this is a photograph and not a painting. So um, I can produce it more. And I think 15 is a good number. Um, 15, 12, 8, anything less than that, you know, you might as well make it an additional one. Right. But uh, but it's up to you and it's up to your business plan. Like, I know a lot of artists don't think that they need a business plan <laughs> or an exit strategy or anything from the work that they're doing, but you really do. You're selling a product. So however you have this thing mapped out, um, you know, if you're beginning with the end in mind, then you should know how many you think uh, you can sell. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. So what what does an exit strategy look like for a landscape photographer? Uh, an exit strategy would look like, you know, you're 70 years old and you want to retire-ish, something like that. Um, or you want to live comfortably without so much of a hustle. So you want to be represented by other people and all the work that I'm doing right now needs to be able to be accomplished by other people, which means you have to have value in your work and um, notoriety of some sort. And uh, you need your work to be selling for enough money while also having a limited supply to create that value so that you can live off a few sales a year and you know be comfortable and comfortably retired. I think for me, you know, I'll probably continue to create but if I'm building an audience now, then my audience is generally going to consider or include the leading generation, the one before mine, um, our generation, and then the following generation. So by the time I'm 80, one and a half of my audience is either going to be dead or too old to buy art, hmm. right? Yeah. And the other ones are going to be getting to a place where um, you know, some of them might be still collecting work, uh, but... I'm not going to be selling too much to my, you know, the second and third generation generations following me. So uh, my work has to have enough money for the few people that are going to be collecting it to be able to support me and my life and, uh, and moving on forward from that. Nice. I like that. Well, let's um, shift gears a little bit. I'm, I am personally super curious about um, 
for the the high end pieces that you're creating for your clients, like what what mediums um, and display formats are you using uh, to um, showcase your work, but then also when people actually purchase work that may not have been produced quite yet, like what are what is your preferred method of of, of printing and and displaying? So I really like the shiny stuff, like the rest of us. So that for me means either printing on Lumicron <laughs> by Robert Park, which um, I know you've had on the podcast before. But before there was Lumicron, there was the silver halide uh, super gloss paper. And both of them get mounted to uh, acrylic. And uh, the difference is that the Lumicron has to be mounted to acrylic, but the, the super gloss can be sent as a roll to someone who doesn't actually um, want the whole shebang or if you're sending it overseas. So um, those are my go-to um, substrates. But you know, if I'm taking a step back and recognizing what the big and the greats are doing, like, like David Yarrow, who I mentioned before, or Eric Johannesson, who is not necessarily a landscape photographer, but he's a, he's a, in, a well-recognized photographic artist. And um, uh, you know, some of these other guys who are printing really big highly valued work they're not doing it on this shiny stuff they're doing it on papers um pigment and paper so um i recognize that and i have those are available to my collectors as well so those include for me um the hanamule uh photo rags is one i like especially the photo rag satin and then um some of the other fine art luster and semi-gloss papers they um they're more you know like i said the the generations preceding ours are more used to seeing that they're more used to recognizing it as for the value and longevity that it has and um and some of them just don't want the shiny stuff like i was in dubai in 2014 and i brought a, a roll i had bought a, a tube that was full of like half a dozen pictures of mine all printed on super gloss and i talked to this guy named ellie who was at um he had this gallery. It's like the quarter, the something quarter, or whatever the gallery is over in Dubai. And he literally, think of the most snob artist, galleryist uh, thing you've seen on TV. And he was like literally picking up my pieces and like flopping them around and like throwing them across the table. And he was like, <laughs> why are you printing on this shiny shit? What is this? And it's literally what he said to me. And I was looking around at these, you know, full size and three quarter portraits, you know, like, pieces printed 40, 50, 60 inches where the person's face was bigger uh, than it would be in, in real life. Um, and that's what the gallery sold was you know, mostly just portraits. Huh. And um, and none of them, they were all luster papers, uh, conservatively printed with you know the three or four inch white paper gap where the artist had signed it in yeah. pencil underneath the bottom corner, black frame, glass on the front, and uh, and I was like, well, I thought this was the shit, but you know, got my got my ass handed to me in public in front of other people <laughs> in another country. Um, so 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 yeah, I even had someone come up to me at the uh, the show last weekend and ask me for a piece, or ask me why it was so shiny, and then I I told them that we could print it another. Thing. Interesting. Um, and what about yeah? So the shiny stuff is great. But, what what about um, uh, like I noticed um, you don't print on metal or canvas, and uh, you always have like kind of a a very um, elegant uh, frame. Like ha what 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 what's your thinking behind that? So canvas uh, is never sharp enough for me to to use as a substrate, and even when people request it, I tell them no unless there's a, a need for it. Like for instance, I'm doing, or I, I sent a quote in for a project on a guy who wants to create sound deadening um, artwork. So he, oh, had, he sure. had two needs, he needed artwork and he needed echoes to be. So I said, fine, we do it on canvas. Um, but metal I think is garbage. That's in, if I was just being straightforward and blunt, I think it's garbage. <laughs> I think it doesn't have enough color um fidelity the the sharpness is always off i don't care who you um w what printer claims that they can make it sharp and um and i think it looks cheap 
so I stay away from it. Interesting. It doesn't have a, a lasting appeal to me. Well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're fine. I, I totally understand. Um, but it's, you know, like I'm producing for a different type of people. Like I, like a neighbor of mine who came up to me and wants, wanted to buy some photos from me. So like I printed a couple prints for her on metal and, you know, I made a couple hundred dollars off the sale. It wasn't like I made a killing or whatever, but uh, I don't know. Metal is relatively inexpensive to produce. Looks pretty good. I mean, it's like a jack of all trades, master of none kind of a thing. Uh, but if you're marketing to totally high-end clients, like I can totally see how metal would not be the yeah. way you want to go. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You have to consider your audience. Absolutely. And your audience is no more and no less valid than my audience, right? Well, I mean... No, you're, no you're, <laughs> you have a much larger I mean, audience than I do, a much more accessible audience. So um, there's no... Uh, it's no less or no more valid than mine. It's just a different audience. I... For sure. Did you did you ever read um did you ever read the Elaine Brio book about uh marketing fine art photography? I know it's a weird he has a weird name. It's A L I I N uh B R I O T. But uh um he talks all about like uh you know qu quant quality over quantity and like you know producing like super large prints, high end versus like, you know, lots of volume and I think I think that makes a lot of sense, um, especially if you're thinking about an exit strategy. Like the last thing you want to do when you're 60 years old is be producing like 700,000 postcards or whatever. So I, th <laughs> I think I think what you're saying has a lot of how does a lot of um, makes a lot of sense to me anyway, for sure. Well, so. let me let me let's stay on this topic for just another second. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for sure um, if you can get into that crowd. And that's really an important distinction. Like if you can get into that crowd, yes, it makes sense. If you can hit that market niche and hit it well, it makes a lot of sense. But if you can't, you can't market the same stuff to uh, a, a different priced uh, niche or a different priced part of the market. So it makes sense um, as long as you can accomplish, you know, if you can climb the stairs that high. But if you can't or if you don't or if you don't want to, then uh, you have to consider a different strategy toward getting out. Well, so one of the things that just immediately struck me about what you said is I was just immediately curious about what you think um, are some of the defining characteristics of the type of artwork that appeals to that kind of higher echelon buyer. Oh, well, uh, now we're speculating. <laughs> um, so... I mean, I can tell you, I mean, you've seen my <laughs> stuff, so. Um, yeah. Uh, from a, ah, geez. So I think that the people in that uh, market are looking for something that is not only something they can buy because they love it, and they're going to buy it because they love it. They're always going to say that. I buy it, buying it because I love it. When you get into the multimillionaires, they're buying it as an investment. But the people who are also buying at this level do hope to be able to have some generational impact with their work. They want their kids to love it and their kids, they want their kids to want it. So it has to have a cross generational interest. So if we're talking about my work or my photographs in particular, um, I shoot for this idea that I call comfortable isolation. And it's an idea that, has nothing to do in particular with a generation, but um, with the way our mind works and where we need to be in order to uh, to grow emotionally and intellectually. So I'm creating these very calm, open spaces um, with only a little specifically, just a small amount of detail that um, you can focus on. And it doesn't matter how old you are, if you are in the right mindset, you can appreciate that. And in general, as people grow up, they can appreciate it. So I think that the people who are buying my work can see that it will apply to their next generation and beyond. And I think that 
people in that level are going to also be looking for some sort of characteristic that is beyond the current times. In the same way that Renaissance artwork is timeless, they want timeless artwork. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I like the fact that you actually put words uh, behind the look that you're going for, because I think that, um, I think that's something that a lot of uh, photographers, especially landscape photographers struggle with, because, you know, I think a lot of times we're immediately drawn to the things that we find beautiful in the world. And um, putting putting words or a story behind what that means or how that gets uh, consumed um, is often difficult for us as photographers. So I'm curious how how did you how did you arrive at this idea of um, of a comfortable uh, aloneness? Comfortable, <laughs> yeah. I call it comfortable isolation. Yeah, comfortable um, isolation. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Uh, so how did I get there? So I have a I have a master's in organizational leadership, and um, this is actually part of my TED talk. But I became I became a photographer because um, no one would hire me. So uh, I went back to <laughs> I finished with a master's degree and I couldn't get a job. Um, so I started you know going back to what I was doing that people said I was good at, which was taking pictures. And um, just as a as a complete tangent here, stop trying to sell pictures to your friends. Just stop. I'd, I, to this day, do not have a collector who is a friend of mine or was right. a friend of mine first. Um, just stop doing it. Anyway, because all my friends said I could do this and that they would they think my work is awesome and, you know, I could sell it, but not a single one uh, in seven or eight years has ever bought one. So anyway, so I um, started shooting and I started following this thing. And I know you wanted to talk about it, this follow your voice or find your voice idea. In my master's degree, I, I wrote a paper on something called ego depletion. And um, ego depletion is this idea that it's a theory, not, not entirely proven, that you only have so much energy to make decisions every day. It comes from this proverbial uh, pool in your mind. There's so much energy for you to make decisions. And as that pool gets depleted, your decision-making ability goes down, goes lower, and, be, and becomes depleted. And you make poor decisions as the day goes on. And that pool is, uh, is not elastic. It stays um, however size it's going to be from the day you're born till the day you die. You cannot make it bigger. So there's only two things you can do. You can use it more efficiently or you can replenish it faster. So um, the space that you need to be in is, is pretty much a meditation in order to replenish that pool to refuel your mind, basically, uh, is this isolated place where you can think and have conversations with yourself um, that enable you to grow as a person and enable you to um, grow intellectually. And that only happens in an isolated place. Like those conversations that you have with yourself that help you grow, those inner arguments, only happen when you can be in a place where you're not distracted mm. and, uh, and you're not... Um, there's nothing, there's nothing to tempt you away from that conversation because those conversations are really difficult. And I think we're in, a, we're in a discussion place that might be a little way left hand for some people. But um, no, no, I, I mean, I guess, first of all, like, I think it's pretty amazing that you've somehow found a way to tie your uh, thesis project on ego depletion um, into what... Uh, type of photography and artwork you would you want to produce and what kind of thematic tones it has i think i think that's pretty cool and then taking it a step further um like you've kind of made the realization that this idea that probably the people that you're marketing to i'm just i'm i'm kind of doing a little conjecture here but i think i might be onto something um the people that you're marketing to are probably people that um you know it's high stress uh, lots of money, you know, lots of difficult decisions, lots of ego depletion. Um, and if, if, if you're following what you just said, that the photography that you've produced is a way for them to maybe replenish, uh, their ability to, um, make those difficult decisions in their everyday life. 
Exactly. So the type of work that I'm trying to create is a uh, is a visualization of what that space looks like in your head, like That's what that awesome. space you need to be in. And I think that kind of helped me answer a question from further back in our conversation where that you asked, you know, the people who are looking for artwork at this quote level or this niche in the market are looking for artwork that has a message. Right. They're not looking for something that's just pretty. It has to have a message. It has to um, connect with them in more ways than the visual. Right. Which I think, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but that's incredibly difficult for most uh, landscape photographers, I think, to actually wrap their heads around, um, especially if you want um, your work to have that theme running through it over and over again, the same types of messages. I think that can be incredibly difficult. And I think a few people come to mind that have found a way to do it through processing, not necessarily through composition, which I think, which I think is interesting, but um, yeah, I, I really like, I really like this idea that um, that people should be a little bit more thoughtful about, um, weaving a message throughout their work, I think, and, and obviously that's really challenging. <laughs> it is really, and that's why I only produce a few pictures a year. Yeah, um, I bet. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing too. Is like you're trying to compete in a market where everyone can take a landscape photograph, right? And make it right. make it make it okay at least, if not really good, um, without. S- something that says this artwork is yours and this idea is yours, uh, you're, you're going to have a lot of trouble selling it uh, in a consistent way because otherwise it's just another piece of something that's pretty. Same thing with painters and everything else. You know, There's a ton of painters who are just painting um, impressionist landscapes that's, that don't hit you on a deeper note. And mm. it hits on a deeper note because the buyer knows who the artist is and they know what message they're trying to create and they can internalize that idea so so in, so so in terms of in terms of marketing uh work that has a message do you find that it's helpful to find a way to include words in the description or do you have you found a way to make it to where the work itself is, is speaking that message without you having to go into that nuance of kind of like giving it to people on a silver platter, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, both. And the better <laughs> the, the better that I get at it, the more that the visual does the storytelling part for me. Like uh-huh. if, if you look at my pieces, my new one, Edge of Solace, in terms of landscapes, Edge of Solace, um, Solitude, um, my whole Lonely Boat series, you know, they, they all have that same idea. You could put all those works in the same place and you would see how they all fit together and you can take them apart and you can see the same idea alone. Um, and that's, that's, that's the goal. Uh, mm. Especially nowadays when you can't fit a lot of niches, you can't because there's just too much stuff out there. So right. um, you have to figure out your message and your voice, and then you have to really dig in and create with that. It's not saying yeah. don't go out and have fun and just do whatever. I have actually a lot of trouble just going out and taking pictures for fun nowadays, but um, <laughs> I wish I could, and I wish I could just you know put it out there and put out good work all day long. But um, yeah, you have to you have to you have to figure this part of, of what you want out if you're going to be successful at selling it. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle, including myself. Is you know. There is there for some people for a lot of people I think there there's landscape photography is not necessarily always uh, a release of you know artistic energy sometimes it's just um, I want to get out and have fun you know so I think it's hard sometimes to do both do both well <laughs> you know um, well let's uh I want to shift gears we'll come we'll. I, w- I want to save your 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 um, tips on finding your your voice. I want to save that for the bonus content for Patreon. Um, so we'll oh, come yeah, back to that. Yeah, because I really like that. Um, but I wanted to touch on uh, just real quick. Um, I know that you had mentioned earlier that uh, you're represented by a gallery, 
And I'm curious for what advice you would have for other people who might be out there trying to identify a gallery to maybe partner with to sell their work. Yeah. Okay. So um, you should know that I'm very cynical about galleries. <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually had to sue a gallery, um, in 2016 really? and I can't, I can't say who it was, but if you were sure. following me then, or if you look, uh, it's not too hard to figure out, but um Dealing with galleries is tough because there's a lot of galleries that are shit. And, um, and nowadays, especially nowadays, now that the gallery idea is just dying, the gallery model is going away because of the internet and, um, and because of how easy it is for people to stay at home and get everything they need uh, in terms of consuming content or even get overwhelmed. So people just aren't going to galleries and they're going out of business. Yeah, dealing with galleries is tough. But if you want to get in a gallery, the, there's three things that you need. And I actually got this from David Yarrow when I was, we were both in the same gallery that I had the trouble with. And, um, you know, I called him up. He's got a British accent. He, he was really straightforward about it. And he said, so a gallery has to have uh, three things in order to be successful and worth getting into. Okay, first, it has to have a great location, right? Because we're talking about a brick and mortar thing. Location is really important. So it has to have a great location to the gallery person, the salesman, the director, and or the sales team have to be incredible salesmen, right? And the third is that they have to have a black book. And by black book, I mean, they have to have a bunch of people who they're going to reach out to to tell about your work who can buy it. Nice. Now, 19 out of 20 galleries don't have a black book. Really, they don't have someone who's yeah. They don't have someone who's dedicated to, to pick up the phone all day long when they get a new artist and tell their prior collectors, the people who have been giving them money for years, and tell them that they have someone that they should come see. Hmm. A, a really good gallery would have not only that information, but they would know what the other this person collected from their gallery, so they could tell them when something that fits into this person's interest comes in. And I found that a lot of galleries look at their business as a high-end clothing store would, right? They're just looking, they sell something expensive and they're waiting for foot traffic. But that's, this is why they're going out of business. They're not doing that, that groundwork. Um, the other thing, uh, salesmanship, quality, I know obviously that's just a given. They have to have the salesmanship in their location. But you're going to make, and you know, you mentioned sales funnels earlier. Uh, you mentioned sales funnels. There's a front-end funnel and a back-end funnel. The front-end funnel is for new customers. The back-end funnel is for making more money off of your existing clientele. Mm -hmm. And that's what I have found that galleries aren't doing. They're not going out there and they think social media is is, is their outreach for telling people about new content, but it's not. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in addition to all of those things, the gallery has to show the work that you create. So if they're not showing similar work, then they most likely won't accept you if they're a reputable gallery, but if they do accept you and they're not showing similar work, then they just, they don't have any respect for their walls. Yeah. Because it's gotta have a curated presence. Curation is really important. So if you walk into a gallery and the gallery just has a smorgasbord of artwork, then why would you want them to show your work in the middle of this chaos? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Well, cool, man. Well. Thanks for like, I have been in a gallery before. And so like, I know it's, I think a lot of times people are just, just feel, they feel lucky enough to have their work hanging somewhere. So uh, I feel like once you get over that hurdle, it's probably good to actually think long and hard about what type of gallery you'd actually want to be represented by. And I think, I think those are good, good tips for sure that I definitely will take into mind if I ever find myself in that situation again. Um, so I have two more questions for you. Um, so my first question is, uh, um, you know, based on the name of the podcast, F stop, collaborate and listen, what advice do you have for other photographers? Okay. This is for photographers who want to consider their work as art and want to make money off of it. Cause I feel like there's, to me, there's a difference between, uh, this is a point of contention for a lot of people, but I feel that um, there is a difference between a photograph and art and how you approach it. And 
So this would be advice for the people who are not just having a good time and going out and taking pictures and creating something pretty and something that they can be proud of, but someone who's also trying to go a step beyond and make art with it and um, make art that they can that they can sell and make a living off of. And my advice for that person would be to be uh, much more intentional, intentional about what they do. Right? It's it's not it's mm. processing, editing, you know, spending time outdoors and learning and becoming an outdoors man, things like that. Uh, that's all really good and, and important, but the art part has to be intentional and thought out in order to. Um, really create something that is all about them and is recognizable. Is, okay. that, is that a good advice? Intentionality? Well, I'm going to try to follow it and I'll let you know in about 25 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. I mean, it's something actually I've put a lot of thought into myself, you know, in terms of like, like every every trip I go on to take photos, like am I doing it to have fun? Is it relaxation, you know, or is there something very intentional that I want to produce and get out of the trip that can help me become more successful as a person, as a as a father, as a husband, as a you know, like what what is it that I can be more intentional about? So I think I think that's fantastic advice for other photographers, man. I appreciate it. Well, last question. Um, uh, who do you think would be cool to have on the podcast? And, and like I said earlier, I don't follow a lot of photographers. Um, a lot of what I follow yeah. is painters and things like that who are, I look for what's inspiring to me when it's not always a photograph. I and mean, I think we'll get more into that when we talk about finding your voice. Um, but a few people come to mind. Um, Dustin Lefevre. Um, have you heard of him? You, you might know him. Yeah, actually, um, uh my last guest um, recommended him as well, and I've been following Dustin's work for a long time, yeah. Okay, well, that's perfect. Um, I don't know if you know it, but he has a uh, an account. I just scrolled past it um, where he shoots wide-format film. It's called Life Camera Magic on Instagram, and that's all film, huh. wide-format, um, that 13 by 9, I think, or whatever it is, uh, that I'm pretty jealous of. And... Uh, I think he'd be a, a cool person to talk to. Um, Absolutely, man. I've been actually I've had several conversations about Dustin with lots of people, so I just need to reach out. <laughs> so I think that's that's a good one, dude. Uh, another guy who I mentioned earlier is Eric Joe, J O H. I think his his last name is, um, and I can send you a link uh, to him at some point, but. Uh, he's not a landscape cool. photographer. I don't know. Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. He does shoot landscape, but he creates these fantastical worlds out of the landscapes. And um, and he's he's kind of big time. He's he's from overseas, so that might make it a little bit harder. But uh, uh, it's easy challenge. Easy challenge. So um, <laughs> yeah, I think that in terms of you know, people who I find an inspiration, I definitely put him on that list. And um, cool. I'll dig it. I'll, uh, I'll definitely go check his stuff out, dude. Um, well, man, it's been really cool. Like, I feel like um, I learned a lot of stuff about um, the art of selling art that I that I hadn't learned in the past. So I really wanted to just thank you. Um, how can people learn more about what you're doing uh, with the art of selling art? So uh, <laughs> how do I talk about this without being salesy? Um, <laughs> Why don't you, yeah, like, come on, man. Like, you just got us on the phone. You're trying to sell us on this. Like, <laughs> come on, pull it off. Well, so <laughs> the art of selling art is, is like we talked about before. It's, it's a platform, and I basically just spill my knowledge on it and charge for it, um, to be blunt. But uh, I, I have a, a strong uh, belief, and I talk about it all the time, that we all grow together. So me talking about my sales and my processes and, and finding ways to help people sell their work helps me. But also, if we all start putting real value in our work, then we can also, um, if more people start pricing their work fairly the way they should be priced, then the people who are pricing it, you know, this race to the bottom is just terrible and it's hurting all of us. I know. So um, 
But the artist selling order lives in a few places. It lives on my website, jasonmatthias.com. That's where the subscription platform is. There's the Facebook page, which I don't, it just exists because I need it in order to pay for advertising. But um, there's the Facebook group, The Art of Selling Art, which you should be able to find, um, where I talk openly about a lot of things, as well as I when I put new episodes into the platform, I share them there. And uh, Plus you get drunk and do Q&As. Yes, Q&A, because... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome dude <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you like it i thought it, it is kind of fun you know i said in the last one i'm a, i do drunk q a because i'm a, a social drinker and i don't have any friends but um, i saw that i was like oh <laughs> jason <laughs> no i think it's awesome dude i really i think it's awesome and uh and um i'm glad i'm glad that i got to uh to watch it um it's it's a lot of fun i i think it's really cool what you're doing and i think a lot of photographers especially should be paying attention and and really you know if they have any interest in 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 making money off of what we're doing i think you know i think your platform that you've developed is probably a very good place for people to to start so i think it's awesome so keep it up thanks thank you thanks for the shout out appreciate it yeah man Well, thanks to Jason for taking the time to visit with me on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Um, Be sure to check out the liner notes uh, with links to Jason's work and his site and all the topics we discussed over on my blog at www.mattpainphotography.com. Thanks to everyone who has written a review about the podcast on iTunes. It really does help people discover the podcast. Uh, Plus, when you leave a five-star review, I thank you on the show. Speaking of which, thanks to S. Blakely 3 and Dan Redwing Hawk for their amazing five-star reviews of the podcast on iTunes. I really appreciate that. Um, I have to give a shout-out. I am so thankful for all the generous support that I've received on Patreon. Uh, We just hit our first fundraising goal, thanks to all of your incredible generosity. Um, Our next goal is becoming closer to reality creating a $1,000 conservation award for a landscape photographer. Uh, you too can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash fstop and listen. And I think you guys will really enjoy this week's bonus episode. It's all about finding your voice. Um, and we even include a free download for you to use as a reference. Um, thanks to Jason for providing that. Uh, thanks to our two newest patrons, Ryan Sakamoto and Joseph Doherty. Uh, your support is really appreciated. And as always, if you want to drop me a a note about the podcast, I love hearing from the fans with suggestions, ideas, anything. Uh, Reach out to me via my website at mattpainphotography.com or you can reach out to me on uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, Photo or Photography, or we also have uh, accounts for the podcast. Just look for F Stop and Listen or f-stop, collaborate, and listen. Thanks for listening.